Chapter Eight of Ormond by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. It is said that the Turks have a very convenient recording angel who, without dropping a tear to blot out that which might be wished unsaid or undone, fairly shuts his eyes and forbears to record whatever is said or done by man in three circumstances when he is drunk when he is in a passion and while he is under age what the under age or what the years of discretion of a turk may be we do not at this moment recollect we only know that our own hero is not yet twenty without being quite as accommodating as the mahometan angel we should wish to obliterate from our record some months of ormond's existence he felt and was ashamed of his own degradation but after having lost or worse than lost a winter of his life it was in vain to lament or rather it was not enough to weep over the loss how to repair it was the question whenever ormond returned to his better self whenever he thought of improving he remembered lady annalee and he now recollected with shame that he had never had the grace to answer or to thank her for her letter he had often thought of writing but he had put it off from day to day and now months had passed he wrote a sad scrawling hand and he had always been ashamed that lady annalee should see it but now the larger shame got the better of the lesser and he determined he would write he looked for her letter to read it over again before he answered it the letter was very safe for he considered it as his greatest treasure on recurring to the letter he found that she had mentioned a present of books which she intended for him a set of books which belonged to her son sir herbert annalee and of which she found they had duplicates in their library she had ordered the box containing them to be sent to annalee and had desired her agent there to forward it but in case any delay should occur she begged mr ormond would take the trouble to inquire for them himself this whole affair about the books had escaped ormond's memory he felt himself blush all over when he read the letter again and sent off a messenger immediately to the agent at annalee who had kept the box till it was inquired for it was too heavy for the boy to carry and he returned saying that two men would not carry it nor four a slight exaggeration a car was sent for it and at last harry obtained possession of the books it was an excellent collection of what may be called the english and french classics the french books were at this time quite useless to him for he could not read french lady annalee however sent these books on purpose to induce him to learn a language which if he should go into the army as he seemed inclined to do would be particularly useful to him lady annalee observed that mr ormond wherever he might be in ireland would probably find even the priest of the parish a person who could assist him sufficiently in learning french as most of the irish parish priests were at that time educated at st omer's or louvain father joss had been at st omer's and harry resolved to attack him with a french grammar and dictionary 
but the french that father joss had learnt at st omer's was merely from ear he could not bear the sight of a french grammar harry was obliged to work on by himself he again put off writing to thank lady annalee till he could tell her that he had obeyed her commands and that he could read at least a page of gil blas before this was accomplished he learnt from the agent that lady annalee was in great affliction about her son who had broken a blood-vessel he could not think of intruding upon her at such a time and in short he put it off till it seemed too late to write at all among the english books was one in many volumes which did not seize his attention forcibly like tom jones at once but which won upon him by degrees drew him on against his will and against his taste he hated moralizing and reflections and there was here an abundance both of reflections and morality these he skipped over however and went on the hero and the heroine too were of a stiff fashion which did not suit his taste yet still there was something in the book that in spite of the terrible array of good people captivated his attention the heroine's perpetual egotism disgusted him she was always too good and too full of herself and she wrote dreadfully long letters the hero's dress and manner were too splendid too formal for everyday use at first he detested sir charles grandison who was so different from the friends he loved in real life or the heroes he had admired in books just as in old portraits we are at first struck with the costume but soon if the picture be really by a master hand our attention is fixed on the expression of the features and the life of the figure sensible as ormond was of the power of humour and ridicule he was still more susceptible as all noble natures are of sympathy with elevated sentiments and with generous character the character of sir charles grandison in spite of his ceremonious bowing on the hand touched the nobler feelings of our young hero's mind inspired him with virtuous emulation and made him ambitious to be a gentleman in the best and highest sense of the word in short it completely counteracted in his mind the effects of his late study all the generous feelings which were so congenial to his own nature and which he had seen combined in tom jones as if necessarily with the habits of an adventurer a spendthrift and a rake he now saw united with high moral and religious principles in the character of a man of virtue as well as a man of honour a man of cultivated understanding and accomplished manners in sir charles grandison's history he read that of a gentleman who fulfilling every duty of his station in society eminently useful respected and beloved as brother friend master of a family guardian and head of a large estate was admired by his own sex and what struck ormond far more forcibly was loved passionately loved by women not by the low and profligate 
but by the highest and most accomplished of the sex indeed to him it appeared no fiction while he was reading it his imagination was so full of clementina and the whole paretta family that he saw them in his sleeping and waking dreams the deep pathos so affected him that he could scarcely recall his mind to the low concerns of life once when king corney called him to go out shooting he found him with red eyes harry was ashamed to tell him the cause lest he should laugh at him but corney was susceptible of the same kind of enthusiasm himself and though he had as he said never been regularly what is called a reading man yet the books he had read left ineffaceable traces in his memory fictions if they touched him at all struck him with all the force of reality and he never spoke of the characters as in a book but as if they had lived and acted harry was glad to find that here again as in most things they sympathized and suited each other but corney if ready to give sympathy was likewise imperious in requiring it and harry was often obliged to make sudden transitions from his own thoughts and employments to those of his friend these transitions however difficult and provoking at the time were useful discipline to his mind giving him that versatility in which persons of powerful imagination accustomed to live in retirement and to command their own time and occupations are often most deficient at this period when our young hero was suddenly seized with a voracious appetite for books it was trying to his patience to be frequently interrupted come come harry bookworm you are growing no good come out cried king corney lay down whatever you have in your hand and come off this minute till i show you a badger at bay with half a dozen dogs yes sir this minute be kind enough to wait one minute it has been hiding and skulking this week from me we have got it out of its snug hole at last i bid them keep the dogs off till you came don't be waiting any longer come off harry come foo foo that book will keep cold and what is it oh the last volume of sir charles not worth troubling your eyes with the badger is worth a hundred of it not a pin's worth in that volume but worked stools and chairs and china jugs and mugs oh throw it from you come away another time at the very death of clarissa king corney would have harry out to see a solen goose oh let clarissa die another time come now you that never saw a solen goose it looks for all the world as if it wore spectacles moriarty says so harry was carried off to see the goose in spectacles and was pressed into the service of king corney for many hours afterwards to assist in searching for its eggs one of the black islands was a bare high pointed desert rock in which the sea-fowl built and here in the highest point of rock this solen goose had deposited some of her eggs instead of leaving them in nests on the ground as she usually does the more dangerous it was to obtain the eggs which the bird had hidden in this pinnacle of the rock the more eager corney was to have them 
and he and ormond and moriarty were at this perilous work for hours king corney directing and bawling and moriarty and ormond with pole net and pole hook swinging and leaping from one ledge of rock to another clambering clinging sliding pushing and pulling each other alternately from hold to hold with frightful precipices beneath them as soon as ormond had warmed to the business he was delighted with the dangerous pursuit but suddenly just as he had laid his hand on the egg and that king corney shouted in triumph harry leaping back across the cleft in the rock missed his footing and fell and must have been dashed to pieces but for a sort of projecting landing-place on which he was caught where he lay for some minutes stunned the terror of poor corney was such that he could neither move nor look up till moriarty called out to him that master harry was safe all to a sprained ankle the fall and the sprain would not have been deemed worthy of a place in these memoirs of our hero but from their consequences the consequences not on his body but on his mind he could not for some weeks afterwards stir out or take any bodily exercise confined to the house and forced to sit still he was glad to read during these long hours to amuse himself when he had read all the novels in the collection which were very few he went on to other books even those which were not mere works of amusement he found more entertaining than netting fishing nets or playing backgammon with father joss who was always cross when he did not win kind-hearted king corney considering always that harry's sprain was incurred in his service would have sat with him all day long but this harry would not suffer for he knew that it was the greatest punishment to corney to stay within doors a whole day when corney in the evening returned from his various out-of-doors occupations and amusements harry was glad to talk to him of what he had been reading and to hear his odd summary reflections well harry my boy now i've told you how it has been with me all day let's hear how you have been getting on with your bookmen has it been a good day with you to-day were you with shakespeare worth all the rest all the world in him corney was no respecter of authorities in books a great name went for nothing with him it did not awe his understanding in the slightest degree if it were poetry did it touch the heart or inflame the imagination if it were history was it true if it were philosophy was it sound reasoning these were the questions he asked no cramming anything down his throat he said this daring temper of mind though it sometimes led him wrong was advantageous to his young friend it wakened ormond's powers and prevented his taking upon trust the assertions or the reputations even of great writers the spring was now returning and dora was to return with spring he looked forward to her return as to a new era in his existence then he should live in better company he should see something better than he had seen of late be something better 
his chief his best occupations during this winter had been riding leaping and breaking in horses he had broken in a beautiful mare for dora dora when a child was very fond of riding and constantly rode out with her father at the time when harry ormond's head was full of tom jones dora had always been his idea of sophie western though nothing else that he could recollect in her person mind or manner bore any resemblance to sophia and now that tom jones had been driven out of his head by sir charles grandison now that his taste for women was a little raised by the pictures which richardson had left in his imagination dora with equal facility turned into his new idea of a heroine not his heroine for she was engaged to white connell merely a heroine in the abstract ormond had been warned that he was to consider dora as a married woman well so he would of course she was to be mrs connell so much the better he should be quite at ease with her and she should teach him french and drawing and dancing and improve his manners he was conscious that his manners had since his coming to the black islands rusticated sadly and lost the little polish they had acquired at castle hermitage and during one famous winter in dublin his language and dialect he was afraid had become somewhat vulgar but dora who had been refined by her residence with her aunt and by her dancing-master would polish him and set all to rights in the most agreeable manner possible in the course of these his speculations on his rapid improvements and his reflections on the perfectibility of man's nature under the tuition of a woman some idea of its fallibility did cross his imagination or his memory but then he blamed most unjustly his imagination for the suggestion the danger would prove as he would have it to be imaginary what danger could there be when he knew as he began and ended by saying to himself that he was to consider dora as a married woman mrs connell dora's aunt an aunt by the mother's side a maiden aunt who had never before been at the black islands and whom ormond had never seen was to accompany dora on her return to corney castle our young hero had settled it in his head that this aunt must be something like aunt eleanor in sir charles grandison a stiff-backed prim precise old-fashioned looking aunt never was man's astonishment more visible in his countenance than was that of harry ormond on the first sight of dora's aunt his surprise was so great as to preclude the sight of dora herself there was nothing surprising in the lady but there was indeed an extraordinary difference between our hero's preconceived notion and the real person whom he now beheld mademoiselle as miss ophelia was called in honour of her french parentage and education and in commemoration of her having at different periods spent above half her life in france looking for an estate that could never be found 
mademoiselle was dressed in all the peculiarities of the french dress of that day she was of that indefinable age which the french describe by the happy phrase of une femme d'un certain âge and which miss ophélie happily translated a woman of no particular age yet though of no particular age in the eye of politeness to the vulgar eye she looked like what people who knew no better might call an elderly woman but she was as alert and lively as a girl of fifteen a little wrinkled but withal in fine preservation she wore abundance of rouge obviously still more obviously took superabundance of snuff and without any obvious motive continued to play unremittingly a pair of large black french eyes in a manner impracticable to a mere englishwoman and which almost tempted the spectator to beg she would let them rest mademoiselle or miss ophélie was in fact half french and half irish born in france she was the daughter of an officer of the irish brigade and of a french lady of good family in her gestures tones and language there was a striking mixture or rapid succession of french and irish when she spoke french which she spoke well and with a true parisian accent her voice gestures air and ideas were all french and she looked and moved a well-born well-bred woman the moment she attempted to speak english which she spoke with an inveterate brogue her ideas manner air voice and gestures were irish she looked and moved a vulgar irish woman what do you see so wonderful in aunt ophelie said dora nothing only the sentence was never finished and the young lady was satisfied for she perceived that the course of his thoughts was interrupted and all idea of her aunt effaced the moment he turned his eyes upon herself dora no longer a child and his playfellow but grown and formed was and looked as if she expected to be treated as a woman she was exceedingly pretty not regularly handsome but with most brilliant eyes there was besides a childishness in her face and in her slight figure which disarmed all criticism on her beauty and which contrasted strikingly yet as our hero thought agreeably with her womanish airs and manner nothing but her external appearance could be seen this first evening she was tired and went to bed early armand longed to see more of her on whom so much of his happiness was to depend End of chapter eight